0: This is 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know— He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Our study of the letters to the church at Corinth. I have the privilege of um, having a week out of the pulpit and uh, letting Dr. Richard White begin our study or um, re-entry into the study of these letters. Um, Richard, uh, most of you guys, if you've been around for more than a week, uh, know he and his wife Donna because they wander in and out of the pews introducing themselves to newcomers as well as asking um, how you're really doing if you've been here a while. And oftentimes they don't settle for pat answers. I'm fine, but they want to go deeper. And it's a real gift that uh, they are a real gift to our church. Richard has been for almost two decades a professor of urban studies and planning at PSU, uh, where he has taught students about community organizing and how uh, the design of the built environment fosters community or doesn't and how to care for uh, the marginalized and the less fortunate in our communities and in urban design. Um, But what you may not know is that he, before that career, was also a pastor for about two decades. And so he brings those two things uh, together in a real unique perspective, and it's very exciting for us as a church, uh, not only to have him here, but Uh, a church that is seeking to do ministry in a complex urban environment um, to have his perspective this morning on this text. I am thrilled and I hope that you guys will be encouraged and benefit greatly from him being in the pulpit today. So Richard, thank you for agreeing to do this.
2: Well, I'm a little concerned after that introduction. <laughs> uh, last time I was here, I was asked to close out the series on Galatians, and now I'm, st- I'm opening the series on 2 on Corinthians. And uh, it was almost exactly a year ago uh, that I was here in the pulpit. Um, so come back next year. We'll see if there's a pattern developing of some sort. All right. <clears throat> Let's pray. I need to before we begin. Our God in heaven, you are a gracious and loving God, a God of all comfort, and I ask you humbly that you would give me some confidence this morning and you would give me clarity and that I would speak clearly uh, to the minds and hearts of those who have come to be fed by you today. Guide us in this endeavor together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Evidence suggests that Paul uh, first arrived in Corinth in spring of 50 A.D., not yet 20 years after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. He stayed a year and a half to help establish the congregation, bring it toward uh, maturity, and then he continued on his missionary journey. Corinth was a rich uh, commercial port, set in a narrow neck of land connecting central and southern Greece. It was located at the intersection of major trade routes. It was what we would call today a change in transportation point where ships offloaded to caravans and caravans offloaded to ships. It was a mere 50 miles from Athens, probably a three-day journey or so by foot uh, in Paul's day. And the city was large and prosperous. It was about a half million people, about the same size as Portland City. Not Portland metropolitan region, but the city of Portland. It was multi-ethnic, with large Roman, Greek, and uh, Eastern populations, including a large uh, contingency of Jews. It was the administrative capital of the province, had a significant Roman military presence, And the people came and went with great regularity. So Paul could see that if the gospel was planted here, at this crossroads, where people were coming and going, this place of commerce and and, uh, importance, that it could spread naturally along the networks of social, political, geographic landscape, and it could spread throughout uh, Greece and throughout uh, Asia and into Europe. It was a strategic location. But this was a tough town. The temple and sexual cult of Aphrodite was there with its 1,000 temple prostitutes, as were the temples of Poseidon and Apollo and Hermes and Isis. Corinth was a rough and brutal seaport whose residents were known for being crude. Unethical, immoral, and spoiling for a fight. To be called a Corinthian was an insult. And this little congregation drug all of the difficulties and habits of their culture right into the church house. The second letter to the Corinthian church written from Macedonia only three or three and a half years after Paul had closed his ministry in Corinth is a result of a series of short visits by Paul and Timothy and Titus and a series of letters trying to move this church to maturity. It is a difficult and tremendously frustrating and deeply hurtful time for Paul and it filled him with distress and anxiety. We read that, we see that all the way through this second letter. Our text, 1 Corinthians 1, 1-11, is a bit of good news, bad news. Or, I should say, bad news, good news. The bad news is that Christians are not immune to affliction. In fact, they're magnets for it. We could never accuse Paul of preaching a prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus, and you will, your troubles will be over. Come to Jesus, and you'll become wealthy. Come to Jesus, and you'll be confident and untroubled. Quite the opposite. And here's the bad news. A total of eight times, eight times in this passage, Paul uses the terms affliction and suffering. He sets them out as natural consequences of following after Christ. More than once, Jesus himself warned his listeners that to follow him was to mean persecution and even death. Peter, in his first letter, writing to uh, his uh, uh, beloved people, was saying, Do not be uh, surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. And yet we are surprised when someone resists us. We are surprised when we meet some resistance to the faith. Now let's look for a moment at these two terms, affliction and suffering. The term that Paul uses for affliction means to be weighted down, pressed, pressured. It's as though someone were standing on your chest. At its root, it means to be constricted. To be narrowed down. Literally, it means to be in a tight spot. The Greek version of the Old Testament uses this same term, uh, talking of Balaam riding his mule. When the mule meets the angel of the Lord in the passageway, the mule pushes against the wall and crushes Balaam's foot. That's this word, crushing. This idea of affliction is weighty, pushing, crushing. Our term pathology is from the term that Paul uses for suffering. People who heard this would have immediately recognized that Paul was not talking about physical suffering necessarily at all, but of the mental and emotional anguish that comes with this brutal force of pressure. Something, it says, in in, in ancient Greek, it was meant to be endured. You could not escape it. That was suffering. Look at how Paul describes his own circumstances in verse 8 of our passage. We were burdened. This is a word that uh, uh, calls forth a metaphor of a a mule or a donkey under a load that can no longer stand. It is stumbling and falling. Or a ship that is too heavily uh, loaded, and as it's pulling away into the harbor, it is sinking before your very eyes. He says, we were burdened excessively, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Can you hear him? Can you hear Paul saying? He's crying out, dear God, I can't do this. I can't go on. And he's saying we were at that point in our lives. Many in this room know what it is like to lay in bed at night, unable to sleep, unable to breathe, unable to slow the pounding of your heart or the, or the spinning out of control of your mind, buried in the pain of loss, the loss of professional identity, the loss of a of finances, the loss of a, uh, uh, a child to sickness or substance abuse, the loss of a marriage, the crushing, suffocating pain that simply must be endured because it cannot, it will not go away. And Paul talks about this in this passage. That is the bad news. In the words of Eliphaz the Temanite to Job, to be human is to be in trouble. But there's good news. And as it turns out, the good news is really good news. The good news is, as we read in verse 3, God is a God of comfort. Absolutely, the pain comes. Absolutely, the suffering comes. Absolutely, the pressure is there. But God is there as well. In the passage we looked at last week, the 23rd Psalm, we read in that fourth verse, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod is... And thy staff, what? They comfort me. God's presence along the way. Isaiah 66, 13. I love this passage. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. When I was about nine or ten years old, my world was not very good. It was kind of falling apart. My grandmother, who had uh, taught me to tie my shoes, taught me to read, in, in the back of whose wheelchair I had stood while she was trimming her roses, sometimes picked up the errant pruners or a glove. The one who helped raise me died. My oldest brother, whom I idolized, thought the world revolved around him, stole a car, Escaped our family home in southern Oregon and made his way to my other grandparents' home in Texas. My parents, in their wisdom, decided it was best to reconcile with my oldest brother by rooting up the family and moving to Texas. So we moved to Texas and lived there for six months until they could rebuild the relationship with him there and then brought him home. And we moved into another house. It was no longer my grandmother's house. And it was this old ramshackle place that my dad was was remodeling on the weekends. He was a long haul truck driver. He was only home four to six days uh, a month. It was near the railroad tracks, had a car up on blocks in the backyard. You can imagine what it was like. And I was in a new grade school and Linda and Russell my, my best childhood friends were not there with me. All the bullies somehow find a, found a way to the, to the new school, but they didn't make it. And my mother went to work long before uh, I, I went to school. And she came home long after I came home, and I spent a lot of time alone. I was tremendously unhappy. One day I came home from school. And there's my mother. I don't even remember why she was there. And she asked that simple question that every mother asks their child, their, their elementary school boy, when he tumbles in from school, she says, how was school today? And I burst out crying. I began to sob. I, I, I couldn't tell her what was on my heart, and I don't think I really even knew. So I, I said, you know, everybody hates me. I don't have any friends. My mother sat down beside me on the couch. She put her arm around me. She looked at me and she said very quietly in my ear, they're just jealous because you're so handsome. (laughs) Yay, Mom! (laughs) And so over the years, whenever I face Difficult times, I tell myself, they're just jealous because I'm so handsome. (laughs) I can live with this. In later years, I've come to the opinion that she may not have been entirely accurate. They're probably jealous for other reasons as well. Isaiah speaks to me. God says, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted. The good news of 1 Corinthians 1 is that in the midst of our affliction, there is comfort. Indeed, the overwhelming emphasis of the first nine chapters of this book is comfort. In five short verses, Paul uses the word comfort ten times. He's like a two-year-old with a new word. Comfort, 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 Just already, just covers it up. And in these opening verses, he lays out a general principle for us. First to the Corinthians, and then by extension to us. Let's look at verses three and four again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. By the way, that should say in every affliction. So that. Underline those words in your order of worship. So that. Purpose. We will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. Simple principle. This is the pivotal verse in this passage and provides the guiding principle given the Corinthians and by extension to us, we are comforters. Perhaps better said, we are conduits of God's comfort. I love the way Eugene Peterson phrases this in his paraphrase, the the message. Speaking of God, he says, he comes alongside us when we go through hard times and before you know it, He brings us alongside someone else who is going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. Our word comfort is from the same family of words used by Jesus to describe the promised Holy Spirit. In that well-known passage in John 14, the one that begins, let not your hearts be troubled. And in which we hear Jesus say to his disciples, I will not leave you orphans. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. The King James Version says, and he will give you another comforter. Originally the term meant to summon for assistance. If you've been a Christian very long, you've heard a sermon or read a devotional or a commentary about this word, and you know something about it. You know that the words helper or comforter means to be called alongside. Xenophon, the student of Socrates and a mercenary soldier, used the term to summon someone to bring needed equipment to the battlefield. They were lacking something. He summoned someone to bring it. But gradually the meaning began to shift and simply uh, and, to, and to imply not only calling for assistance, but coming alongside another to give assistance. And so the term came to be applied to advocates and intercessors as well. Those with the experience and understanding we lack. Someone who can deal with the complexity that threatens to overwhelm us. The simple principle, again, is this. God has come alongside you and me to give us help. We have an advocate. We have one who can deal with life's complexities. So we too should come alongside others in the same manner. I want to be very, very clear here God does not bring affliction and suffering on us, but He uses them as an opportunity for our maturity. an opportunity for our growth. And part of our maturing is learning to comfort others, to get beyond ourselves. Among the many ways in which we find government, uh, ra- rather comfort given in the Old and New Testament, and let me tell you there are many. Let me stop here for a moment. And say that when Brian assigned me this passage and, he's, and he talked about being comforters, um, I decided to zero in on that word comfort and I got lost in the vast amount of stuff on this subject. It was like when you buy a new car, you know, it's, you think it's so special and, uh, and it's so wonderful, but once you get in it and start driving it, you see them everywhere. Everywhere. There are many ways the Bible uh, uh, describes to us giving comfort. I want to suggest to you three that are important for us today. The first is physical comfort. This is probably among the simplest and uh, most easily understood ways to give a distressed and suffering person comfort. Meet their immediate physical needs. James, second chapter, writes to us, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet does not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? Clearly, one means of comfort is the physical. One interesting example of delivering comfort, the physical comfort in the Old Testament, I think, is from the book of Ruth. Ruth, the second chapter, Ruth is speaking to Boaz, who allowed her to glean in the field and gave his foreman strict instructions that he was to watch out for her to keep her from being assaulted by the other workers. He is offering her physical, uh, not only the physical sustenance she needs for she and her mother-in-law, but Protection. Here's her response. You have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant. Literally, she says, you have spoken to the heart of your maidservant. Oh, you can see where this book is going immediately. This is, this is a great book all by itself. I want to stop here for a moment. And suggest to you that one of the problems we face when we deliver physical comfort is we believe that it's short term. Frequently giving physical comfort means walking with someone for a very long time, seeing to their needs day in and day out. And it's costly and expensive, but we have to do it. God has walked with us in the long journey. As He has given us comfort, so we too give comfort. In the same manner. an interesting New Testament example of this could be found perhaps in Acts 6 chapter, where giving comfort, physical comfort, is now institutionalized in the church as deacons or ordained to take care of the Gentile widows. And so we see in this one type of comfort, We see that we have an obligation to do it as individuals, but we also have an obligation to do it as a body, the church. Second type of comfort. Encouragement. Some years ago when Donna and I were at uh, the Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, and and I'm sorry, I lost track of the year in which it was. It was many years ago. But I ripped the page out of the... Uh, out of the uh, Playbill in which uh, Libby Apple, the festival director, had written a story about hiking the Italian mountains as a student on an international exchange program. Here's what she writes. Being a New Yorker and very unathletic, I was quite unused to the rugged climb However, it was a beautiful day. Mountain wildflowers were growing all around me, and I tried, to little avail, to keep up with my friends far ahead. At the point where I was about to give up, one of the boys cried out to me, Libby! Porza! Coraggio! Avante! Be strong. Have courage. Move forward. I can't honestly remember if I was successful that day reaching the summit we sought, but the rest of my life, those three Italian words have remained ringing in my ears. Encouragement. Verse 6 of 2 Corinthians. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. He writes, God who comforts the depressed comforted me with the coming of Titus. I wanna notice two things there, two things, in in actually, uh, in, in all of these incidents I'm bringing forward. The first is, give up the phony idea that being depressed is sinful. I don't know where that ever came about in the church, but give it up. God comforts the depressed, Paul said that. We see it with Elijah. God comforts the depressed, but how does he do it? always by the coming of a person, never in isolation. Frequently, comfort comes with one who simply walks with us in our moment of stress. On our difficult path, someone who sits and offers no advice, doesn't preach at you, just is there. Whatever you might think of Job's friends, and they were pretty strange guys, they did some things right. Job, the second chapter, verse 11. Start reading there and catch this. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place, to sympathize with him and to comfort him, they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and no one speaking a word to him for they saw that his pain was great. Comfort. Or a word fitly spoken. Timing is, is right in most cases. A third And the most important form of comfort that we can give is spiritual comfort. Our passage here, Paul suggests, that of the most important means of spiritual comfort is intercessory prayer. Paul's personal testimony in the second half of this chapter about his affliction in Asia and the comfort he received from the Corinthian church indicates that God's deliverance Came at least in part in response to the prayers of the Corinthian church. Verse 11, he says, Helping us through your prayers. As with the previous forms of comfort, and by the way, let me suggest to you the encouragement corporately frequently comes from this place right here, from the pulpit, from the music. From the communion, in terms of encouragement, it comes to us both individually and institutionally. Comfort. So it is true of this. Intercessory prayer is given prominence. The prayers of the people is given prominence in worship. In the back of the sanctuary each Sunday... Are those willing to intercede with you in prayer because they know, as our passage indicates, that God is a God of comfort? And there are others among you who are praying for you week in and week out, interceding. In Acts 12, we find a somewhat humorous circumstance of intercessory prayer. A small band of believers is praying in uh, the the home of Mary, uh, the mother of John Mark. Uh, James has just been killed. Herod has seen it, made people happy, so he grabbed Peter and says, you're next. Peter's in, and an angel comes to Peter in the middle of the prison, walks him down the corridors, past a couple of guards, out the gate, leaves him in the street, says, you're on your own. See ya. (laughs) He's gone. And Peter's saying, whoa, what just happened? So he goes to Mary's house. He goes to the house of Mary, oh, John Mark's mother. And he knocks on the door. And Rhoda comes to the gate. comes to the gate and says, Peter says, let me in. She says, oh, it's Peter. And she just she doesn't open the door. She runs back. People are still praying. She says, Peter's outside. They says, No, it can't be. It's got to be his ghost. They must have killed him already. She says, No, it's Peter. So they go to see. They didn't even believe in their own prayers. Oh, what? What? How important is this to us? Have you ever prayed for someone, for something, prayed for God's will to be done, and you just felt like your faith was not moving it? It was like pitching a bowling ball to the ceiling. Even when we have such tiny faith, intercessory prayer has power. Fasting, praying, laboring over prayer, praying for his people, confessing their sins, asking for deliverance. And Gabriel, the one whose name means God is my strength, shows up and says what? Daniel, the moment you started praying, the plan was started. The moment you started praying, God began to take action. God is ready to act, to deliver comfort through prayer, if we but do it. 2 Kings 6, we find one other example of intercessory prayer in the life of Elisha. Now this is a bit of a stretch, but I love this passage. Elisha's been feeding information about the movement of the Syrian troops to the kingdom. Mighty upset. Where's this guy live? So he sends, he sends his troops down and they surround this little tiny town of Dothan. Now, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, goes out to draw water. He's going to fix the prophet some coffee for breakfast. I don't know what he's doing. He's going out to draw water. Maybe they're going to have French toast. I have no idea. So he's, he's going out to draw water. He sees the armies all around Dothan. He panics, he goes running. To Elisha. And he says, We're surrounded. Here's what Elisha answers Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Here's the intercessory prayer. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and sheep. Part of our responsibility to bring comfort is to pray that those who lack spiritual depth and therefore find it hard to trust God might have their eyes open to the realities around them. That God is at work even if we can't see him. He is protecting, guiding, helping. And I would suggest to you having our eyes open is true comfort. One more about spiritual comfort, and that's about restoration. We don't have time to spend on this. Galatians 6 1 deals with this. But there are those who have for whatever reason, withdrawn from the fellowship of Christ, who have put themselves outside the body. And Paul writing to the Galatians on how to restore a member to the body of Christ who is entrapped by sin. Here's what he says. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. In verse 2, Paul says, what? Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Spiritual comfort in this case involves the spiritually mature bringing someone who has strayed back into fellowship, humbly and gently bearing their burden. Such is the power of forgiveness to hear someone say, you are forgiven, or I forgive you. In the last analysis, the greatest spiritual comfort, that comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted, is the good news of the infinite riches of Jesus Christ. We can offer no greater comfort to those stainer of the universe and the lover of their souls. When Jesus was seven days old, His parents brought him to the temple, and there an old man, Simeon, was waiting. And Luke tells us, this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. This is our word, comfort. There are many looking for consolation. Simeon was looking for the fulfillment of of Isaiah chapter 40. The comforting work of God that turns desolation into consolation, that passage that begins with God calling out, comfort, oh comfort, my people Israel. And Toward the end of the passage is a delightful way in which Isaiah begins this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, his understanding is inscrutable, his strength He gives to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous, young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not faint. There is bad news. Affliction comes. Christians cannot escape it. We cannot escape the chaos and distress of our present age. We cannot escape the chaos and distress that threatens to crush us and destroy us and leave us in mental and emotional anguish. But the good news is we are not orphans. The Holy Spirit working through the hands, the presence, the voice of the church gives us comfort, physical, emotional, spiritual comfort, Paul said it, God who raises the dead, who delivers our hope, he will yet deliver. If you're here today and you've not, res- uh, you've not come to know this comfort of Christ, please talk to me sometime today, and I'll leave you with this. Paul's benediction from 2 Thessalonians. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and the good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Amen.